Hello, friends. This is the Neatarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's neatartsfriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. You are not as good or bad as you think you are. You're a much worse person than you think you are, and you are a better person than you think you are. Now, how do those statements strike you? Is there one of those statements that you'd like to toss out or throw aside? Is there one of those statements or the other that describes your internal dialogue and how you most often feel about yourself? Or does it feel like both of those statements certainly can't be true at the same time? We tend to either exaggerate or ignore other people's upsides and downsides. So we idealize them or we judge them. Uh, We turn other people into angels or demons. It's either, man, they're the greatest thing since sliced bread or they're completely no good and they're screwing everything up. And we kind of do the same thing with ourselves. Uh, We can either beat ourselves into the ground with shame or arrogantly tell ourselves, there's nothing wrong with me. I always do the right thing. And, and we make ourselves the hero of every story. And so it's hard to admit how much of a mixed bag we all are. It's hard to admit that you are a much worse person than you think you are, and that you are a better person than you think you are. Now, what I'm saying is nothing new. Christian Miller, professor of philosophy and contemporary ethics at Wake Forest University, has actually done tons of study on this. He's written a fabulous book called The Character Gap. He is published in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Newsweek, on and on. And Christian Miller looks at what the empirical data actually says about humanity. You know, Uh, People argue sometimes, are humans basically good or are they basically bad? Well, he looks at what the empirical data says, and not just one study. He has taken hundreds and hundreds of studies from the last century of science, neuroscience, social data, psychology. And what he's found is that it really does not take very much to get us to forsake our values. We like to tell ourselves that we are good and honest people and that we'll do the right thing, but the data says something else. In actuality, most of us have an overly inflated view of our own character, and so we deceive ourselves. We're not self-aware. But that's not all the data shows. The data also shows that We are not completely heartless. We do reach out. We are good. We are compassionate. We do help. And we are capable of a beautiful and good and compassionate 
loving, other-oriented life, even a more loving life than we even think. We, we are better than we think. We are neither virtuous nor vicious. So I'll share just a couple of the studies that Christian Miller cites. He cites a study that was done in the early 2000s on cheating. So they brought hundreds of people in and they asked them to take a test. And they told everyone, you're going to get paid 50 cents for each correct answer. And so they took the test and then the tests were scored. And the average correct score on the test using, you know, hundreds of people the average score was 7 out of 20. So that was the control group. The control group was 7 out of 20. Now, next, they brought in hundreds of people, asked them to take a test, but they those people got to grade their own test. And then they, they get to destroy the evidence, they destroy the test, and then they're asked to self-report what they how they did, so they can give a verbal record of their score. <clears throat> so if they want to say they got 20 out of 20, they're going home with 10 bucks, which you could say it's kind of a free 10 bucks because we already know the, the average score is 7 out of 20. So what did the average score come back as once people were allowed to grade their own test? Well, the average score doubled. It went from 7 out of 20 to 14 out of 20. So people were going home with a free $7. They brought in a third group of people to take the test. And this group, just before they asked them to take the test, they asked them to sign the university honor code that said they aren't going to lie, they aren't going to steal, they aren't going to cheat. And so they, they asked them to sign this, and then they got to take the test and score their own test. And the scores went back to 7 out of 20. It's, it's fascinating. The second group of people, they demonstrated that when given the opportunity to benefit and gain some free money, if all we have to do is fudge a little bit on our own honesty, we're going to take advantage of that opportunity. But, but then you wonder, why didn't that second group just go ahead and report the full 20 out of 20? Like if you're going to lie and you're going to, take money and like if you're going to take seven dollars why not make them give you ten dollars well christian miller says it's because we want to be able to think of ourselves as good and honest people we care about our own self-image and it's connected to our own self-worth so if we cheat just a little bit we can handle looking in the mirror our self-image is somehow still intact. But most of us can't handle reporting 20 out of 20 because we're better people than that. Deep down, we really do value honesty. 
we really do have a set of values and we can't just run against those values with abandon that would create too much of a crisis for us cognitive dissonance so we're okay doubling our money based on dishonesty but we're not okay with taking someone for all they're worth and so there's this third group then who signs the honor code and their score goes back to 7 out of 20 when they sign the honor code because they were just reminded of their values. It's that we want to be able to think of ourselves as good and honest people. So we're not as good as we'd like to think we are. We have these, these methods of rationalization and self-deception that make it possible for us to fudge a little bit and tell ourselves, I'm still pretty good. Another study uh, out, of, out of hundreds of studies, this study is the Lady in Distress study. There have been many variations of this study. Basically, a person is brought in to fill out a survey. And they're seated at a desk alongside another person. Now, that second person is a plant. They are an actor. And so, in the next room, after they're given their survey, survey and set up, in the next room, there's the sound of a loud crash. And screams of pain and cries for help. And someone's saying, help, help, I can't get it off me, help. And they're crying out. And the plant, the actor in the room, or actress, sits motionless. They ignore the cries for help. Now, guess what percentage of participants jump up to respond to the cries for help? How many people? What percentage? 93% of people do nothing to help. Only 7% actually get up even though the actor or actress isn't, they get up and they do something. 7%. Now, we'd all like to tell ourselves that we would jump up. That, of course, if we heard the crying, we would jump up and help. But they did this study with tons of different people and only 7% help. So we're not as good as we'd like to tell ourselves we are. We seem in some ways to be apathetic. To the pain of others. But maybe that's not the entire story. We are also better than we think we are. So this study brought in a second group of people and brought them into the same room to fill out the same survey, but there was no actor or actress there alongside them who was going to ignore the cries for help. So they did the same scenario. The crash comes with the cries for help. And where previously only 7% helped, now it went up to 70%. 70% of people jumped up to help. So do we realize why we do what we do?
Do we realize the environmental factors that influence our own behavior? When the study asked the participants in the first scenario, hey, why didn't you jump up to help? The participants didn't say, um, because the other person wasn't jumping up. Uh, they, that's not how they responded. They said things like, oh, I didn't think it was an emergency, or I figured someone else would probably come help. And so it reveals we're not very good at recognizing the environmental factors that influence us. We can't recognize that this was probably a case of, uh, I don't want to look stupid. And so we, we kind of are influenced more by embarrassment, fear of embarrassment, than being courageous and like, I don't care if I'm embarrassed. I have to see if someone needs help. Christian Miller, uh, the guy who's writing this book and looking at all these studies, he says, our changing moral behavior is extremely sensitive to features of our environment. And often we're not even aware of what those features are. So these are just two studies out of hundreds of, that Miller cites that show that it really doesn't take much for us to forsake our values, even to the point of doing the unthinkable, such as like we when we think we just killed another person. We are impacted more than we know by authority figures, by smells, by all kinds of environmental factors, and we deceive ourselves. We want to tell ourselves we can manage our life and know how to do the right thing, and we're completely unaware of the factors influencing us. We don't see how the coping methods that helped us survive as children can actually ruin our lives as adults. We don't see how the patterns in our families and in our society impact us. We become prisoners of our own history and our own environment. And so it brings us to the book of James. Here's what James writes. He says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away and enticed by their own evil desire. And then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, self-deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Now, the, the imagery there in that passage is fascinating because James describes two different mothers and they are conceiving and giving birth to two different persons who grow up and give birth to different children. And James isn't describing a one-and-done moment. This is a process. This is a conception, a pregnancy, a life. And it's a contrast picture that's going on. It's these two different people 
who are trying to be conceived and born inside of you like a false self and a true self. And at the root of these two different birthing experiences is pain. So one mother is our own evil desires. And the other mother is, interestingly, God the Father. He chose to give us birth, Scripture says, which is a a really interesting line. Every time Scripture describes God as both father and mother, we do well to take note of the ways that we tend to put God in a box. He chose to give us birth. That's I don't know many he's who choose to give birth. Birth is hard. It's excruciating. It's painful, just like a whole lot of life. And when we encounter pain, it's always easier to point the finger away. Out there, it's God. It's someone else who's making this so difficult. It's not me. So let's dig in and let's look at these two mothers and these two different lives. So the first mother is our own evil desires. And when that evil desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. Now, of course, none of us like to think of our own desires as evil because that seems ridiculous. We like to tell ourselves and think of ourselves as good, honest, courageous, upstanding people. We're on the level. We do the right thing. We're good people. And so when ideas come to our mind, desires, yeah, we're going to experiment. We're going to try those ideas on and we'll give full consent to some of those ideas, but we don't want to think of them as evil because we don't want to think of ourselves as evil. We think of our desires and our ideas as legitimate and valid. And yet James says that these evil desires give birth to sin. Now the irony is that sin is always an attempt to meet a legitimate need physical, emotional, relational, sexual, intellectual, spiritual. We're trying to meet that need. We're ultimately looking for unconditional love, but we don't always know how or where to find that need. G.K. Chesterton says it this way. He says, any man or woman who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Theologian Cornelius Plantinga says sin is culpable, like intentional, shalom-breaking. Shalom is like the peace, the wholeness, the well-being of all creation and relationships. It's God created this entire world to flourish, and sin is a breaking, a distortion of that flourishing. So underneath all sin... What you find is someone who's trying to meet a legitimate need, but they're doing it in a way that's not working. And it's creating ripple effects in people and relationships, social structures, creation, 
ways that it's causing harm and destruction and lack of peace, lack of shalom, and it's ultimately killing us. 20th century writer and Trappist monk Thomas Merton says, All sin starts from the assumption that my false self, which is the self that exists only in my own egocentric desires, that my false self is the fundamental reality of life to which everything else in the universe is ordered. Thus, I use up my life in the desire for pleasures and the thirst for experiences, for power, for honor and knowledge, to clothe this false self and construct its nothingness into something objectively real. And I wind experiences around myself and cover myself with pleasures and glory like bandages in order to make myself perceptible to myself and to the world, as if I were an invisible body that could only become visible when something visible covered its surface." Every movement of my own natural appetite, even though my nature is good in itself, tends in one way or another to keep alive in me the illusion that's opposed to God's reality living within me. So, in between the birth of sin and the birth of death, there lie these years of growth and nurturing our false self like this little baby sin birthed by our desires. It's cute, like most babies. Self-gratification feels good. We tell ourselves everything's going to be just fine and that we can manage everything. But sin grows and it matures towards death. And the signs are there. There are yield signs, stop signs, exit ramps. And they tell us that chasing our own desires isn't working out for all creation. When everyone's just trying to make themselves happy, shalom is somehow being broken. But we're rarely paying attention to those signs. And so we don't see, oh, this isn't working out for everyone's long-term physical health. This isn't working out for everyone's mental health and personal growth. This isn't helping me become the best version of myself. This isn't what's best for relationships. We, we fail to see that relationships are strained, that there are people who are hurting either because of what we're doing or what we're failing to do. And somehow, our actions are impacting other people financially, emotionally, relationally, mentally. Not everyone around us is flourishing because of our pursuit of our own desires. We don't see that we are complicit and contributing to social structures and cultural forces that are harming entire people groups. The signs are there that... The path that we are on isn't leading to life, but it's leading to death and destroying health and relationships and creation. But who wants to admit that what they've actually been chasing their whole life is the wrong thing all along? Like, we would much rather climb the ladder of success 
and the ladder of our own desires, then admit, oops, I, as it said, propped my ladder against the wrong wall. So rather than realize the false self that has been born, rather than pay attention to the yield signs, it's just easier to look the other way. It's easier to not be very self-reflective, not work on self-awareness, not listen to what others are telling us about our life. It's easier to fall into self-deception. We're masters of self-deception. Theologians Stanley Hauerwas and David Burrell say self-deception requires a policy of refusal to give an account of some part of one's life. It's There's a part of my life that I do not want to look at. And so we tell ourselves that we're just fine. Well, this brings us to our the other mother in the picture. And that mother, in, in this contrast image, in this scripture, is God. So the scripture says, Don't be deceived, self-deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. Thomas Merton says it this way. He says, Sooner or later, we must distinguish between what we are not and what we are. We must accept the fact that we are not what we would like to be. We must cast off our false exterior self like the cheap and showy garment that it is, and we must find our real self in all of its elemental poverty, but also in its great and very simple dignity, created to be the child of God and capable of loving with something of God's own sincerity and his unselfishness. So to say that I'm made in the image of God means saying, it's like love is the reason for my existence. God is love, as it's been said. So once we allow ourselves to receive that love, to be fully loved, and we are completely, utterly convinced of that love, no matter what, sin no longer has the same kind of power over us. Our desires, evil desires, no longer have the same kind of power over us. Because our legitimate needs that we were trying to satisfy in ways that weren't working find their proper satisfaction in God's love. Every good and perfect gift is from above. God's love is not like the shifting shadows of the day. God's love is unlike our desires that shift and evolve because God's love is unrelenting. God's not our enemy. God is the gift giver, always giving. The birth of our true self comes through knowing our self better, which is more than, it's not just good psychology. Uh, for centuries, classical Christian teachers have been saying that knowing yourself is just as important as knowing God. So 
God chose to give us birth, the scripture says, through the word of truth. Now, for any of you who are familiar with the 12 steps of addiction recovery programs, you know the first step is honesty. Uh, and basically all the 12 steps of addiction recovery is birth through the word of truth. And you may say, well, that's just for addicts. Well, I, I think it's actually looking at how we all do this. We have legitimate needs that we try to meet in ways that don't work. And so the birth through the word of truth, it's finally stopping with all of our self-denial. And it's admitting, oh, my life has become unmanageable. My life isn't working in every way. It's being willing to face our own shadow side. And it's facing this truth. I'm worse than I really want to admit. Uh, it's getting honest with yourself and with God about that. It's the degree to which we are willing to face our own shadow side is going to be the degree to which we can be set free and actually be who we are. So it's admitting that there are patterns, there are environmental factors and influences that can easily cause me to forsake my own values. I need help. And it's facing those parts of your life that you really don't want to look at. And it's getting this clear picture of yourself and how your behaviors have impacted you and impacted everyone around you. And it's recognizing, as Pete Scazzaro says, like, yeah, Jesus might live in my heart, but grandpa lives in my bones. It's recognizing how the generations before you have impacted you. And then it's self-selecting. How are you going to handle situations and environments ahead of time so that you don't put yourself into situations where you're just going to do things that hurt everyone? He chose to give us birth by the word of truth that we might become a kind of first fruits of all creation. Now, first fruit doesn't mean a lot to us today, but in, to James' audience, it would be God created y'all to become the first fruit. He's like, you're the best of all creation. You're the apex of all creation. This is what humanity is supposed to look like. And that's this idea. You are better than you think you are. There is a love that is flowing to you from God, and that love wants to flow through you to others, to embody to the world. Here's what humanity is supposed to look like. Love is the reason for your existence, and living in this love is where you find your true self. You are capable of a more beautiful, good, compassionate, loving, other-oriented life than you think. So I want to leave you with some homework to do this week. I want to invite you to write down five to ten of your most negative experiences of your life. 
things where you would say shalom was broken. And then write down five to ten of the most positive experiences of your life. And in each of those situations, I want you to prayerfully reflect, ask some questions, and just see what what God brings up. So consider the situation that you were in, what you were doing, your attitude, your family history, your patterns, the environmental factors and influences that you were unaware of, and ask, okay, so how do these experiences show me what it looks like when humanity deteriorates and when shalom is broken? And then how do they show me what humanity is supposed to look like? What does human flourishing look like? What's that all about? And how do these experiences show me what what's the difference between an experience of death and an experience of life? Like, what is the difference? And what's the difference? How did you experience your false self in that experience? How did you experience your true self? Can you find that at all? In what way was this experience influenced by desires? And in what way was this experience influenced by brutal honesty and self-reflection? In what way do these experiences show you that you're worse than you think you are? And in what way do these experiences show you that you're better than you think you are? So take some time and see what God is saying to you through that exercise. Love you, friends. Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from Neatart's Friends Church. We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.